Hello and welcome back to the History of the British Isles podcast. This is episode 45, interview with Derek from the Hellenistic Age podcast. This is going to be our final interview for now and we'll be back to covering our narrative shortly. Please remember to follow me on Twitter where I'm at BritishHistPod and join the community Discord server. I'll leave links to both of those in the episode's description. Please also consider becoming a patron. We just hit our $20 goal, which means you can expect two special episodes shortly. The themes will be Ember of Normandy, as requested by Anita Gardogni, and Paganism in the British Isles, as requested by Stephen Reinish. Along with special episodes, $20 a month has also allowed me to buy a pop filter for my microphone. This should significantly improve audio quality. Because of coronavirus, it will take a week or more to arrive. Now, let's begin with the interview. Hi, how are you? Good. So the first question I'm going to ask you is, who were the Celts? A lot of my listeners will know within the British context, but obviously the Celts didn't start off in Britain. So who were they in a European context? So to start with, uh, Celts is a rather broad term, but it is a very convenient one. It's derived from the Greek Keltoi and the Latin Celtai. And it's applied to a collection of Iron Age peoples spread across Central and Western Europe, ranging from the eastern portion of the Balkans through modern Germany, northern Italy, and France, and eventually making their way to the Iberian Peninsula and coast of Britain. They shared a reasonably similar material culture, and it's heavily implied by our ancient authors that their languages were at least mutually intelligible to some degree. But a Celt would never identify themselves as being a Celt. Uh, more likely, they would identify by their tribal affiliation. Our perceptions of the Celts comes in almost entirely from the writings of the Greeks and Romans, who had a complicated relationship that imbued the Celts with a sort of otherness or making them as boogeymen, a barbarian peoples with limited self-control, warrior ethos, and predilection for human sacrifice. Figures like Queen Boudicca or Vercingetorix and their conflicts with Rome are some of the most famous Celtic figures. The, sorry, some of the most famous Celtic figures in history. But today we're going to be talking about a lesser-known event that took place in the early third century BC. It's important to give a b- brief background for Celtic history prior to this event. So, if you'll indulge me, uh, Celtic civilization has its roots going back to the late Bronze Age. The descendants of Indo-European speakers that began to migrate from the Pontic Caspian Steppe and into Europe around 6,000 6000 BC or so. Mm Indo-European refers to a language group, which would be the mother tongue of several important related related language families, including Proto-Germanic, Latin and Greek, and ultimately Celtic, which had begun to solidify by the 13th century BC. Following the collapse of the late Bronze Age civilizations of the Near East and Aegean worlds, the Celts had started to form into three large groupings, the Atlantic system, which comprised the British Isles and Iberia, the second being the Rhine-Danube zone in Germany and France, and the Western Mediterranean zone, with northern Italy, southern France, and eastern Spain. By the 8th century, the Celts of the Rhine-Danube zone and the Western Mediterranean zones had underwent a marked improvement in their material sophistication, a time called by archaeologists the Hallstatt period. This is where the Celts developed their ironworking skill that would be renowned in antiquity, 
and also developed a commercial relationship with the civilizations of the Mediterranean, such as the Greek colonists of southern France, the Etruscans in northern Italy, and the Phoenicians. Their desire for wine and other precious goods in exchange for timber and slaves compelled the Celts to reorient themselves closer to these Mediterranean cultures, giving us the first appearance of the Celts in the records of Greek authors like Herodotus and Hecateus in the 5th century BC. By the 400s, Hallstatt society had basically collapsed. But a new and even more advanced culture known as the Latin period emerged. The development of Alpida, the great hill forts and urban centers, dotted the European landscape. And the Celts proved themselves to be very creative, inventing chainmail and wagons that would be readily adopted by the likes of the Romans. Their metalworking skills could produce some absolutely beautiful works of art. With its famous quote-unquote swirly designs involving triskelions and animal motifs that can be seen with famous artifacts such as the Wandsworth and Battersea shields or the Gundestruck cauldron which, de- which depicts their mythological figures. While we may have in mind kings ruling over the Celts, this appears to be relatively uncommon. Instead, there was a warrior aristocracy who were involved in a large network of clients and followers often known as retainers. And the greater number of followers you had, the greater prestige you had in society. Boosted by hosting feasts or leading your forces into battle, Celtic warriors were armed with spears, long slashing swords, or the famous Falcata-type sword, which was really a nasty chopping weapon shaped like a modern cookery used by the Gurkhas. They either could be heavily armored with a really elaborate armor and headwear. There's a helmet with a little bird of prey atop of it that flapped its wings when the user ran with it on. Or they could be butt naked and drive themselves into a frenzy to, to demonstrate their prowess. And contrary to our perception of the Celts, the blue body and face paint used in the films like Braveheart and King Arthur uh, called Woad was not really common. It's kind of a modern modern thing. There was a few times they may have used it, but it wasn't widespread. Um, women in Celtic societies were generally able to wield more power than their Greco-Roman counterparts. The extent to which they can has been under debate, but there is somewhat of a tradition with historical figures like Boudicca and the mythological ones like Queen Medeb if I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, Celtic religion is poorly understood, though we have tales of Hugh Hulane that passed down through the works of later Irish scribes during late antiquity. And we have about 200 different deities, uh, the most famous being Taranis or Lugus, with whom the Romans identified Jupiter and Mercury. Uh, The closest thing we have to religious officials in Celtic society were Druids. And according to Julius Caesar in his commentaries on the Gallic Conquest, they were one of the most powerful figures other than war chiefs, though they seem to be more of an archaic leftover in continental Europe since they held much more power in Britain than anywhere else. Human sacrifice has been confirmed by archaeological records, either preserved in the oxygen-free bogs that victims were tossed into or votives that contained human skulls, since the head was the seed of the soul and could transfer power to the owner, at least according to Celtic custom, and headhunting was something that was recorded by both Greek and Roman authors. As we'll explain in a little bit, uh, the relationship between the Celts and Mediterranean powers, especially that of Rome, was to become more hostile and combative. Migrations of Celts into Italy and Greece were matched by the imperial expansions of the Roman Republic. The conquest of Gaul by Julius Caesar and the last pockets of resistance in modern Hungary were snuffed out under Augustus Caesar, effectively ended independent Celtic civilization, at least on the continent. And the Celts of Britannia would not last much longer either following the arrival of Emperor Claudius's legions, though individual communities would continue to survive, such as in modern Ireland and Scotland. Okay, so the next question I'm going to ask you is, 
What do you think was the main cause of the Celtic invasion of Greece? Because that's going to be the main subject of this interview. Well, there are two main issues that contributed to the invasion. So, as a bit of background, in 323 BC, Alexander the Great, the Macedonian king who had conquered the Persian Empire from the Balkans to India in about 10 years, died in the city of Babylon with no immediate heir to take the throne. Almost right afterwards, his generals, often called the successors or Diadochoi, began to carve the empire apart and proclaim themselves as kings, waging a series of wars that would last for nearly 40 years. This essentially birthed what is known as the Hellenistic world, and the most important Macedonian dynasties that emerged out of this fighting were the Antigonids, battling for control of Macedon, the Seleucids, based in Syria, and most of Asia and most of Alexander's Asian provinces, and the Ptolemies in Egypt. Macedon itself was largely spared from the ravages of civil war, but during the 290s and 280s BC, it became a battleground for several would-be kings, including Demetrius Polyarchides, the same one who besieged Rhodes, uh, his son Antigonus Gonatas, uh, the famous Pyrrhus of Epirus, the one who would later fight Rome, and various others. The year 281 alone saw the deaths of two major kings, uh, Lysimachus I, who had kept Thrace under control for decades, and Seleucus I, which sent parts of the Seleucid Empire into revolt following the news of his demise, encouraging many local rulers in Anatolia to declare their independence. This all just served to dangerously destabilize the region of the Balkans, Greece, and Asia Minor, with vast amounts of wealth beginning to circulate through coinage, plunder, and treasure, which inevitably acted as a beacon to attract trouble. Now we come to the Celts. The sophistication of the Latin period also led to high levels of population growth, and they began to push outwards in what is often called the Migration Period. As early as 400, Italy was feeling the pressure of the Celtic migrations into the Po Valley. And by 390 or 387, depending on which chronology you choose, the tribe of the Senones, excuse me, had defeated a Roman army at the Alia River and sacked Rome itself, forever haunting the psyche of her citizens. Greece, on the other hand, remained relatively safe, and most of our records between Greeks and Celts are just offhanded references regarding trade and customs by Herodotus and Hecateus around the 5th century BC. But during the reign of Alexander the Great, we have two meetings between the Macedonian king and Celtic envoys, once during his campaigns against the Illyrian and Thracian tribes in the Balkans, and another in Babylon almost 13 years later, in indicating that they had begun to move close to the Macedonian border and into the Balkans. This was, no doubt in, this was no doubt in part due to the weakening power of the tribes north of Macedon, who kind of always kept the Celts at arm's length from the Greek world, and the gradual movement of the Celts and instability of the region proved to be a dangerous combination. Celtic noble society was centered around the notion of gift-giving. A warband or leader or king needed to provide booty and treasure to their retainers in order to add to his own prestige, and they were starting to run out of room. The Celts were already attracted to the various Mediterranean goods like wine, glassware, and pottery, and the wealth taken from Alexander's conquest of the Persian Empire had begun to funnel back into Greece and Macedon and freely circulate in the midst of Saxon sieges between the warring dynasts. I also personally would not be surprised if the vast amounts of mercenaries that these Macedonian kings hired to staff their armies had included Celts to some extent, so they would firsthand be able to see and report back to their homes about the easy pickings that awaited in the Mediterranean. Okay, thank you. So the main cause basically was that there was wealth there, the Celts had overpopulation and they wanted to take the wealth. Simplified. So the next question I'm going to ask you is, 
What happened during the invasion? Excuse me. So our sources for this period are pretty poor in general, but we have an overall idea of what happened thanks to surviving accounts by geog the geographer Pausanias and the later epitomizer Justin. So in, two or, in, pardon me, in early 279 BC, a large group of Celts had approached the border of Macedon led by a man called Brennus, who shared the same name as the man who sacked Rome century prior, so we think it might be a title of some kind. Um, there, was no there was no indication that this was anything but a raiding party, as they had spent much of their time pillaging the, region, pillaging the regions of Illyria and Thrace, and anything at this point was just dipping their toes in the water. Well, this obviously got the attention of the current Macedonian king at the time, uh, Ptolemy the Thunderbolt, and he led an army to confront the would-be marauders. Brennus's envoys demanded payment in silver before they would consider leaving, and understandably, Ptolemy didn't take too kindly to this offer fielding the famed Macedonian phalanx that had conquered much of the known world. Unfortunately for him, it did not go to the way that Ptolemy expected to, and the Macedonian army was overwhelmed by the ferocity of Brennus's warriors, and the so-called Thunderbolt had been thrown off his mountain slain. His head was stuck on a pike and carried around the Celtic battle line. Despite Macedon being thrown into chaos at the death of yet another king, Brennus didn't take the initiative and decided to head back home for the year, spreading word of an easy victory against the soft Greeks and the vast amounts of booty that was ripe for the taking. He soon amassed an army, some Greek authors giving us a obviously exaggerated number of 200,000 warriors strong, and launched an invasion the following year. The Macedonians were prepared this time, though, and the Celts simply did not have the siege equipment to take the fortified cities of the north. Instead, they turned away from Macedon and headed into the Greek peninsula, where they wreaked havoc and passed through the gates of Thermopylae, eventually reaching and besieging the famous and wealthy Oracle of Delphi. Eventually, they were defeated, Brennus being killed in battle off the slopes of nearby Mount Parnassus, but the many surviving troops continued to spread outwards. In 278, uh, three of the tribes, the Tolistobogi, the Tectosagis and the Trochmi had arranged a deal with the newly crowned King Nicomedes of Bithynia in northern Anatolia to migrate across the Bosphorus with their families and serve in Nicomedes' armies for return in land and payment. Well, it turned out that the rich cities that dotted the coast of modern Turkey proved to be irresistible, and they raided and extorted the Ionian Greeks for around five years. We aren't too sure with dates, and this period could be expanded from five to ten years, but according to some authors, the new Seleucid king, Antiochus I, engaged, with battle, engaged in battle with the Celts in the year 274, and defeated them thanks to largely to the use of war elephants, later giving it the nickname the Battle of the Elephants. This effectively put an end to the Celtic invasion as we know it, though the surviving Celts continued to be a presence in Anatolia for the next several centuries. Okay. So, how did the Greek? So you kind of touched on it, but how did the Greeks resist? Like, how were they able to go from the brink of defeat at the beginning, with the defeat of the king of Macedon and his murder, to eventually defeating them? How were the Greeks able to resist? So the arrival of the Celtic invaders had caught the Greeks largely by surprise. Uh, since losing their army and king in the first battle with Brennus, the Macedonians had left their southern neighbors to kind of fend for themselves. But to get to the rich and wealthy regions of central and southern Greece, uh, the Celts were going to have to go through the famed mountain pass of Thermopylae, the same one defended by the Spartan king Leonidas and his various Peloponnesian allies against the forces of the Persian king Xerxes I nearly two centuries before. The vanguard that defended the hot gates was something of a pan-Hellenic league, 
with around 23,000 Athenians, Boeotians, Megarians, Aetolians, and additional Macedonian troops that were lent by Antigonus Gonatas and Antiochus I, all coming together to stand as a wall against the Gallic tsunami. The entire affair kind of feels like a recreation of the historian Herodotus' account of the Greco-Persian Wars. And the ancient authors are consciously writing to mimic it, which tells you how much trauma, how much trauma was involved to these Greeks by these interloping barbarians. Initially, the defense of Thermopylae had gone well for the Greeks, as the Celts were unable to get past the defenses of the land armies, nor avoid the supporting attacks by the Athenian navy, which was stationed nearby. Brennus was a smart commander, though, and clearly had done some sort of reconnaissance work on the makeup of the Greek army, so he split off some of his troops to rape and pillage their way through the countryside, which caused several of the Greek troops to abandon Thermopylae so they could rescue their farms and families. This just played right into the hands of the Celts, and a local trader revealed the hidden mountain pass that led behind the Hellenic army, who promptly scattered upon the ships and sailed away, leaving the nearby cities to their fate. When the Celtic army turned their attention to Delphi, things were a bit different. Now, Delphi was long revered as perhaps the most sacred spot of all of Greece, often referred to as the Omphalos, or the navel of the world, and and was host to centuries worth of riches and gifts from pious Greeks and city councils, and it had so much wealth that it could functionally act as a bank for anyone who wanted to use it. It was little wonder that Brennus would have been attracted to such a spot, but his presence was a sacrilege of the highest order to the nearby Greeks. Brennus and his army were trapped on the mountainside of Parnassus by freak storms, rock slides, and the anger of the nearby Phocians and Aetolians, who managed to scatter whatever was left of the warband's unity. Brennus would later commit suicide rather than be captured. Um, There's a debate, uh, according to Greek historians at the time, whether or not the Celts actually took the treasure for themselves. Um, They like to pretend that they didn't, and and the freak storms was kind of a divine intervention, but... Later traditions uh, by the Romans stressed that uh, after the defeat of Celtic tribes around uh, the time of Gaius Marius, they managed to find the sacred treasure taken from, um, from Delphi. And whether that's true or not, I'm not entirely sure, but that's, that's the story we're given. So it's, it's, this whole period is just a complete mess, so we'll have to take it at face value. Uh, the remaining Celts would spread into Thrace and continue to wreak havoc until Antigonus Gonatus would successfully ambush the Gallic army and wipe them or and wipe them out or take them into his own service, so clearing Greece of any remaining traces. With Asia Minor, though, it's hard to hard, it's harder to tell what exactly happened because our sources are extremely poor compared to the invasions in the Greek mainland. Things were a bit different, given that the Celtic tribes had effectively migrated and settled into central Anatolia as their base of operations, rather than just being one long extended raiding party. Uh, The details are pretty scattered, but fragments from various Ionian Greek cities survive that reveal the extent of violence these Celts inflicted. Some Some cities were extorted or had to pay ransom for their captured relatives and neighbors, though some that were returned committed suicide out of the traumas that were inflicted upon them. Others managed to fend the Celts off. Uh, one Sotas, son of Lycus, was commended by an inscription for successfully leading a counterattack on the invaders, and another from a father thanking the gods for the return of his son from a battle with the Celts. But there was no sort of combined effort to subdue the Gauls like there was in Greece, most likely because Anatolia was very politically fragmented, which did not encourage cooperation to any extent, and it was full of well-fortified cities that encouraged people just to try to wait it out. It wasn't until King Antiochus I of the Seleucid Empire, who managed to finally bring the Gauls to battle, 
a date that ranges from 276 to 268, a disparity of nearly a decade, which is just a treat to deal with for anyone who is studying ancient history. The, totes were, the Celts were totally unfamiliar with the use of war elephants, which had been popularized in the Hellenistic world since Alexander brought them back. And th by that point, raids did continue intermittently, but it was there was nothing to the same extent as what occurred from 279 till about, let's say, 270, 274. Okay, great. So, so the Greeks were able to defeat them in two separate groups. May and you can say that in Greece it was at least partially due to the weather. The next and um, final question I'm going to ask you is, what was the aftermath of the invasion? What happened after the armies were defeated? How, what effect did it have, even though they were no longer marauding bands? So the Celtic invasion brought many changes to the Hellenistic world. Their arrival radically affected the political landscape. Antigonus Gonatus used his victory over the Celts in Thrace as a uh, stepping stone to claim the Macedonian throne and allowed him to establish a stable dynasty that would rule Macedon for over a century, at least until the arrival of the Roman Republic. Antiochus I of the Seleucid Empire managed to be declared a hero for his actions at the Battle of the Elephants, and received adulation from the peoples of Asia Minor, given the epithet or, of Soter, or Savior. Several local and burgeoning dynasts and kingdoms in Asia Minor, like Bithynia and Pergamon, used the Celts to maintain their independence from both Macedon and the Seleucid Empire, and the mainland Greeks resent the lack of military assistance by their supposed Macedonian protectors. And the invasions contributed to the formation of several alliances and leagues, the most famous being the Achaean and Aetolian leagues, which would play a role in the downfall of Macedonian power when the Romans kind of stepped into the political scene. Uh, despite their defeat by Antiochus I, the Celts were actually allowed to remain in north-central Asia Minor a region that would eventually become known as Galatia, and their descendants known afterwards as Galatians, derived from the Greek word for Gaul. While they would never again be the same threat as they were during their initial invasions, they remained a powerful force in the affairs of Anatolia, and they never really gave up raiding their neighbors. Their relationship with the Hellenistic and later Roman worlds remained complicated, though. Galatian warriors, often hired as mercenaries for the armies of the Hellenistic kings, who saw firsthand that their martial prowess though they are often described as being fickle of loyalty. And uh, one pretty notable incident was the Egyptian king Ptolemy II, who hired Galatians. And once they revolted, he trapped them on an island in the Nile, and they were forced to cannibalize each other. So that's pretty brutal. Um, anyone familiar with the famous Dying Gaul statue uh, should be also aware that it was actually part of a victory monument ordered by Attalus I of Pergamon. And... You know, a lot of these kings like to go, you know, go on campaign against the, the barbarians from the from the West because it would give them a sort of a prestige boost, a status thing, like the like Antiochus, like Antiochus the first used, like Antigonus the Gnatus used. Um, and finally, in the first century, the Romans ultimately subjugated them, dissolving the Galatian government by roughly the middle of the first century BC. Despite this, uh, the Galatians continued to thrive, and nearly three centuries after defeat by Antiochus and settlement into Galatia, they still retained much of their ancestral culture while also adopting both native Anatolian and Greek customs. And in the ninth book of the New Testament, simply known as the Book of Galatians, uh, St. Paul the Apostle wrote to Galatian communities in the first century AD, urging them to convert to Christianity, and still was referencing the people's Celtic origins several hundred years after the fact. 
this is kind of the we don't know much about Galatia, and that's afterward after the period of early Christianity, they sort of uh, became melded with you know normalized Hellenic or Hellenistic Anatolian culture. Um, I'm going to recommend two accessible books if you want to learn more about the Celts. Uh, the first is The Ancient Celts by Barry Cunliffe, and the other is The Celtic World by Miranda Green. Uh, I'm a big fan of Barry Cunliffe books, and you know if you want to find you know, the, it's hard to piece Celtic history together since we have little to no sources written by them, if at all. And a lot of it has to be reconstructed through the eyes of the Greeks and Romans and the uh, archaeological remains that, you know, that exist. And I think Barry Cunliffe's is a great introduction. And the Celtic world is something that's, you know, expands it significantly. It's a much larger and much denser book. If you want to learn more about the Hellenistic, you know, the early Hellenistic period and the fighting of the Diodohoi and Celtic invasions, uh, I recommend uh, Dividing the Spoils by Robin Waterfield. It's a really well-written book, and it kind of it kind of covers every little piece of the pie. Uh, Celtic invasions are sort of a uh, secondary note, but they're still important for, as I mentioned earlier, they just totally reorganized the political landscape for Macedon, Asia Minor, and uh, Greece at the time. And if you just want to learn about the Hellenistic world in general, uh, going from Alexander the Great to Cleopatra of Egypt, I'll give a shout out to my show, uh, the Hellenistic Age podcast, which is available on virtually every podcast platform, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, iTunes, and YouTube as well. So just type up that name and you'll find me pretty quickly. Yeah, it's really good. It's a really good podcast. So anyone who does want to learn more, we've already done promos on each other's podcast about half a year ago. But if you do want to learn more, I would really recommend this podcast. Also, for further reading material on the Celts, A Brief History to the Celts is quite a good starting point because it's not a very big book, which means it's not very much, It's not that much of a commitment to just pick it up. Anyway, thank you for your time. It was really interesting. No problem. Thanks for having me. And I hope everybody, uh, and, you know, hope enjoyed my talk on the Celts. And, uh, you know, I encourage you to look further. It's a fascinating subject. And uh, this is just only a small portion of their thousand-year-long history. Okay, bye. Bye. Thank you all for listening. I hope you enjoyed the interview. I'll link Derek's podcast in the description. It's well worth a listen. A big thank you to my two $10 du- Duke slash Duchess tier patrons, Anita Gardoni and Stephen Reinish. And goodbye.